What's up, everyone? I am Bonifia. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of my podcast. I want to welcome you to the Murder Cafe. Get your cup of coffee or tea ready and sit down for yet another fascinating case. So I am back again with another disturbing case for you guys. And in this third podcast episode, we are going to be talking about the Soham murders, which are the murders of Holly and Jessica. So actually, one of my friends told me about this case and I decided to dig a little deeper and find out more about these tragic murders involving two 10-year-old girls. And the deeper I investigated and read into this case, watched videos and read articles, the more creepy details that I came across that sent shivers down my spine, you guys. The only positive thing that I could say about this case is that I'm relieved that it's solved and that the murderer has been convicted. Okay, so let's get right into this case and start at the beginning. So Jessica Amy Chapman was born on the 1st of September in 1991, and Holly Mary Wells was born on the 4th of October in 1991. So both of these girls were 10 years old, and they lived in Cambridgeshire in England. Um, The two girls were best friends. They went to the same school, and they did everything together. They live really close to each other in a town called Soham, and this little town was in Cambridgeshire, which is why these murders are named and well-known as the Soham Murders. So, Jessica and Holly were huge Manchester United fans, and they both actually had matching Manchester United team shirts, and the girls happened to be wearing those shirts on the day that they went missing. So the girls were missing on Sunday, the 4th of August in 2002. Holly and Jessica were at a family barbecue at Hollywell's house, and it was just a normal kind of summer day. Around 6.15pm that day, the girls decided that they were going to walk to the local shop and buy some candy for themselves, but they never actually told Holly's parents or anyone at the barbecue where they were going or that they were leaving. And sadly, they did never return home. So around 8.30 p.m., Holly's parents realized that they hadn't seen or heard from the girls for a while. So they decided to go up to Holly's bedroom just to check on the girls and see what was going on, where they were. And when they got there, they went in Holly's room and obviously the girls were not there. So they searched the house wondering where the girls were. And that was the point that they realized that Holly and Jessica were missing. After searching kind of the local area around Holly's house, parks, playgrounds, places nearby where the girls might have gone, Holly's parents couldn't find Jessica and Holly anywhere. Holly's parents were getting really worried about Holly and Jessica, so they decided to phone the police at 9.45 p.m. that night to report the girls as missing. The police responded right away, and the next morning, the story was already on the news, where the girls were being described as white, around 4 foot 6, slim, and there was a recent photo published of both of the girls, and this photo was taken the day at the family barbecue, where they were both wearing those matching Manchester United shirts. So the town where the girls lived was a very tiny town. But it also had like a close and warm community. So everyone knew each other and most people knew Holly and Jessica or at least knew their parents. So when the news broke that these two little 10-year-old girls from Soham were missing, people immediately volunteered to help look for them. Hundreds of people wanted to help to find these girls. Three different police units went out searching for the girls among the volunteers. 
So the missing case of Holly and Jessica was already a huge investigation on the first day. And 24 hours after the girls disappeared, the police made their first public appeal on the news. So we'll play a snippet of this public appeal for you now. Their disappearance is incredibly out of character. They haven't been missing before. Very well balanced, very bright young girls. As far as we can tell, they've taken no change of clothing and no money. So as you say, it's quite out of character. So in Soham, the place where the girls lived near, there were a lot of fields and it was kind of a wooded area. And so the police, their first thought was that the girls maybe had gone on a walk together and that they got into one of these wooded areas, had gotten lost, and that they were not able to find their way back home. So police tried to track Jessica Chapman's mobile phone, but it was 2002, so the technology was not as advanced like it is nowadays, and so they couldn't really trace her phone to a specific area. So the day after the girl's disappearance on the 5th of August in 2002, both Holly and Jessica's parents made a public appeal on the news for the girls to return. Holly and Jessica's uh, primary school was called St. Andrew's Primary, and this school was kind of turned into an investigation base for this whole case. So police could report back there because there were so many different units from so many different areas. So all new information, tips, and evidence on Holly and Jessica could all be reported back to this school. And even volunteers could go there for an update on the case or to give information about the girls. It was just a general base for investigation on Holly and Jessica's case. So, a woman in a nearby village had reported seeing the two girls walking in front of her window on the morning after their disappearance. Someone else also reported seeing a suspicious white van 10 miles away from Soham, and this van was actually seized by police and searched, but neither of these two leads, unfortunately, never really brought anything back. So, on the night of August, it's been five days since the girls' their disappearance and they still weren't found. So, a local sports center was looking through their CCTV footage, seeing if there was anything on there. And sure enough, the girls had actually visited that sports center on the day of their disappearance. So police came up with a theory that maybe the girls were meeting someone there and maybe they had planned to meet someone that they had met in an online chat room before. But as quickly as this theory was made, it was also ruled out. A local taxi driver in the Soham area also came forward to say that he had seen a green car struggling with two children and driving erratically in Soham on the evening of the girl's disappearance. He said that this green car had driven into an estate in a town called New Market, and so the police believed that this was a pretty big lead. They made this lead about New Market public by putting it on the news. The night that that lead was made public, a man walking his dog just outside of Newmarket alerted police to two mounds of earth laying on the side of the road. So police were fearing that these two mounds of earth could be Holly and Jessica in shallow graves. And the police came out immediately to search these two mounds for anything, but they found absolutely no trace of the girls. Meanwhile, police further up in the country came up with their own theory about this case, that maybe the girl's disappearance was linked to an attempted abduction the year before in 2001. A six-year-old girl somehow managed to get away from her attacker, who was threatening to abduct her, threatening to kill her, and this guy was driving in a green car, and he was never caught. The same man was also believed to have been following a 12-year-old girl home one day, also in a green car, but this was never confirmed to be the same man, because obviously this man was never identified, so you can't be sure that there was a certain man in a green car following little girls, so that's why this lead was difficult to link to Holly and Jessica's case. <music> 
On the 15th of August in 2002, after the girls disappeared, Sky News did a segment where they retraced Holly and Jessica's steps on that day. And as a part of this, they interviewed the last person believed to have seen Holly and Jessica before their disappearance, a man called Ian Huntley. Ian Huntley was a caretaker at a local school, and this was not Holly and Jessica's school, but one very close. However, he lived with his girlfriend, Maxine Carr, and she did work at Holly and Jessica's school, and she was their teacher. Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr lived very close to the shop where the girls went on the day of their disappearance to buy some candy, and Ian Huntley actually saw the girls. So I will play a snippet of the intro to the interview that Sky News did with Ian Hundley. 6.15 p.m. The timeline on that Sunday night, the 4th of August, puts the girls here. We know they've been to the sports centre just across the road a few minutes before to buy some sweets and were carrying on walking. How do we know they were here at 6.15? Well, we have an eyewitness. Ian Hundley here is a familiar figure. Ian Huntley had come forward with this information right at the beginning of the investigation. Like, as soon as he found out that these girls were missing, he came forward to the police to say that he had seen them leaving the shop at 6.15pm that day, on the 4th of August. So, I will play another snippet of the interview with Ian Huntley, in which he explains he saw Holly and Jessica. Yeah. Um, I stood on the front doorstep, grooming my dog down, she'd run away and come back a bit of a mess. Um, they just came across and asked how Miss Carr was, and she used to teach them at St Andrews. Um, I just said she weren't very good, and she hadn't got the job. And they just said, please tell her that we're very sorry. And uh, off the walks in the direction of the, um, the library over there. So 6.15pm, the 4th of August in 2002, was the last kind of definite sighting of Holly and Jessica before they uh, supposedly left and set off back home. I will play another snippet of the interview for you guys in which Ian Huntley confirms he thinks he might be the last person to have seen the girls. You may, as it turned out, have been the last person to actually chat to them before they vanished. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Maxine Carr, Ian Huntley's girlfriend, and Holly and Jessica's teacher also gave a TV interview with Sky News. And I will play a part of this for you now. They're so funny, brilliant, they're kind to everybody, and I love the families and everything, which is why nobody believes that they would ever run away. This is something I'll probably keep for the rest of my life, I think. It's what Holly gave me on the last day of term. She was very upset, and that's the kind of girl she was. She was just lovely. So after the interview had finished, um, Maxime Carr went off home. And then one of the members of the Sky News crew that was interviewing Maxine noticed something weird about this interview. And I will play a snippet explaining this. My producer said, just play that tape again. I'm sure she was talking about the girls in the past tense. That was very close to all their family. And um, that's the kind of girl she was. We thought that's strange. And that certainly got our alarm bells ring. So after this weird interview with Maxine, police then began thinking that maybe Maxine knew a little bit more than she was letting on. Police also became suspicious on her boyfriend Ian Huntley because he had kind of a weird obsession with Holly and Jessica's case. He always wanted to be interviewed about it, both by police and TV crews. He was always at the forefront of investigations, always out searching, and it all just seemed kind of suspicious to the police. Ian Huntley didn't know these girls, and the time that he spoke to the girls on their way home from the shop was the only time he had ever spoken or seen the girls. And so the big interest that Ian Huntley had in this case did not make any sense at all. Now, I want to play a part of a documentary on the Holly and Jessica case that I've watched. And this explains why bystanders being so intensely obsessed with a case is seen as suspicious by the police. 
It's a commonplace now for the police to take an intense interest in bystanders and onlookers at crime scenes. It's true in arson, it's true in murder, that they always look at who volunteers to search for a body. Often, the perpetrator is among the searchers because they want to admire their own handiwork. So the theory that was just explained in the snippet is still being used by police nowadays in other cases because criminals or murderers seem to use this kind of behavior a lot to play off as an innocent bystander in a case. They, however, make themselves suspicious with this behavior because in this situation with Holly and Jessica, why would this couple be so intensely interested in a case when they don't even know the girls personally? So on top of the suspicion when it comes to Ian Huntley and his girlfriend, another shocking realization is that Ian Huntley was the last person to have ever seen the girls before they were missing. So police were starting to think, wow, these two people really could be involved in something to do with these missing girls. They're close enough to the case and have clearly aroused police suspicions. So on the 16th of August in 2002, 12 days after the girls' had disappearance, Ian Hundley and Maxine Carr were taken to separate police stations for questioning. So in the questioning, the two of them said that they were just hanging out together on the night that the girls disappeared and that they were just having a normal night. Somehow, this was a good enough alibi to let them both go after seven hours of questioning. So the Sky News reporter found out that the two of them were in for questioning. And so when they got out, he called Maxine Carr for an update interview. And I will play a snippet of the news reporter explaining this. What happened? How are you, sir? Well, we're fine. Um, I can't tell you anything about it, but it's all all right. Huntley then grabbed the phone off her and I guess wanted to end the conversation quickly. The police have let us go. Nothing going on. Thanks a lot. Thanks for ringing. Bye. So before we get much further into the whole story, I just want to give you a little bit of background on Ian Hundley and Maxine Carr. So Ian Hundley was born in Grimsby in England, which is just a little bit north of Soham. Um, he was born in 1974, making him 28 at the time of the case. Um, he had a really rough childhood because he was relentlessly bullied by children all the way through school and he never really had any friends. So I think this whole past created a bit of sense of shame in Ian. Something that is often at the root of a lot of men, like in terms of what they go on to do. So he started off as somebody who was always that kid that was a little bit odd, the odd one out, the one who was a bit of a loner. Um, in December of 1994, he met an 18-year-old girl called Claire Evans. And they had what can only be described as a whirlwind romance. And the two of them were married within two weeks of meeting each other. His wife, Claire, however, quickly found out that Ian Huntley had a terrible temper and later claimed that she feared for her life and that he would often put his hands around her neck. Claire quickly fell out of love with Ian Huntley and began seeing his younger brother. However, Ian refused to get a divorce from Claire until 1999, keeping her locked in for five years in his marriage because he felt that if he stayed married to her, then this might prevent Claire's relationship with his younger brother. And this even though he didn't actually love her back anymore. He just didn't like the idea of Claire leaving him for his younger brother. He would always feel really threatened by his younger brother. Ian felt like he took the attention away from him when he came into the family. And because of Huntley's narcissistic tendencies, he's always going to feel like he's been outdone by his brother. 
1998, Ian Huntley was still married to Claire because, like I mentioned earlier, he was kind of over Claire, but he just didn't want to get a divorce. But however, in 1998, he met a 15-year-old girl named Katie, and he got her pregnant, which I will actually come back to later in this podcast episode, so keep this pregnancy in mind. So I will play a snippet now that explains Ian Huntley's unhealthy appetite, or you could say obsession with younger girls or women. I think it would be fair to say that Huntley demonstrated throughout his adolescence and early manhood that he had an unhealthy appetite in younger and younger women. Well, during his 20s, Ian Huntley preyed on a lot of young girls, underage girls, and, and the police thought that there were possibly up to 60. Also, in 1998, on age 25, Ian Huntley was charged with burglary and rape of an 18-year-old girl, which really damaged his reputation in the Lincolnshire area. This, among many other sexual assault allegations, because I could find over five sexual assault allegations on Ian Huntley while doing research on this case online. However, the one with the 18-year-old girl was the only one he was ever charged with. But if I could find five allegations online easily with a quick Google search, you can probably imagine that there's possibly more, like maybe women that just never went to the police or ones that just never made it online. You could also imagine that there's a lot, and one of which included a 11-year-old girl. And Ian Hundley actually admitted to sexually assaulting an 11-year-old girl. So all of these allegations and the actual charge on the case with the 18-year-old girl were all really damaging to Ian Hundley's reputation. In 1999, Ian Huntley met the 22-year-old Maxine Carr, and within four weeks of seeing each other, Maxine moved into his flat. Three years later, the two of them moved to Scunthorpe together, and it's believed that they did this to escape Ian's really bad reputation as a sexual predator in the area. But it wasn't long before Ian Huntley's sexual predator reputation followed him again to Scunthorpe. So I will play a snippet of an interview with Maxine and Ian's neighbor in Scunthorpe at the time. And her name is Marissa. Maxine and Ian were a lovely couple. Maxine was any 25, 26 year old girl bubbly, giggling, talking about wanting to have children. She wanted to work in a nursery and get a job and everything. She was fantastic. I finished work at eight o'clock at night, come home, the next minute there was a, a police van outside in, in the back. Next day I saw Maxine, I said, are you all right? Is the family okay? You don't be like that. I said, no, um, Ian's been accused of raping Grinsby. He says, but the dates they've got, we were living next door here. So after a while, Marissa also started noticing that Ian and Maxine never really left the house. And she also noticed that Ian Huntley had some kind of very controlling behavior. After a while, Ian's controlling behavior led to violent behavior towards Maxine. So I will play another snippet of the interview with neighbor Marissa explaining this situation. I went around to see Maxine. Um, Ian was at work. Basically, I had a cup of coffee, put it on the table, and next minute it was taken off the table, bleached, cleaned, and put in the cupboard. And then she told me, no, Ian doesn't like to know that anybody's been in the house. So she was a bit scared of what was happening. I was not allowed to tell him that I'd been in the house. My sitting room goes, you could see straight into their kitchen, and he was shouting at her, calling all the names of the son, you does your toll, you do what I tell you to do. You see her crouching in the corner where he was hitting her. You listen to me, you do what I say, you don't listen to nobody else. So in 2001, the couple then moved again to Sohan, where they remained until this whole Holly and Jessica case happened. And Maxine got a job at the primary school where Holly and Jessica went, and Ian Hundley got a job at a local college as a caretaker. So now that I've given you some background information on Ian Huntley and Maxine Carr, we can go back to our timeline on the case. Maxine and Ian have just been in for questioning. They've been released after seven hours. 
But something in Ian's questioning must have seemed a little bit off to the police because this sparked a police investigation of both Ian's house and his workplace on the 17th of August, almost two weeks after the girls disappeared. So the police found some pretty incriminating evidence against Ian Huntley. At the school that he worked at, inside one of the bins, police found the burned remains of the girls there matching Manchester United football t-shirts, their tracksuit bottoms, shoes, and underwear, and they were all identified to be Holly and Jessica's. So I will play another snippet of the documentary of this case that I've watched, and this explains the evidence that was found. One of the crucial items in this particular case was the tops that the little girls were last seen in. These were unusual, and this helped us tremendously to build up a picture of the types of fibres that it would be easy for us to find. So now that the clothes were found, they had to be linked to Ian Hundley specifically, because even though they were found in bins at the school that he worked at, it didn't necessarily mean that he had done it. So I will play another snippet explaining the crucial evidence to link this all to Ian Huntley. During the examination of the items from the bin, um, I found five human head hairs. These head hairs were compared with Holly's hair and Jessica's hair. They didn't match either of those two, but they did match Ian Huntley's hair. So the hair that was found in the burned remains in the bins was matched to Ian Hundley's. And that was enough evidence for police to arrest Ian Hundley and Maxine Carr on suspicion of murder. Finally, in Maxine's second questioning, she admitted to lying in her first questioning about where she was on the day of the girl's disappearance. Previously, in her first questioning, she said, that her and Ian were just hanging out that night, having a normal night. But now, in the second questioning after her arrest, she said that she was actually 110 miles north of Soham in Grimsby, which could actually be confirmed. So Maxine was 110 miles away at the time of the girl's disappearance, but now this left Ian without an alibi in the last few hours. So I will play a snippet of the news reporting on the arrest of Ian and Maxine 13 days after the disappearance of Holly and Jessica. In the last few hours, a 28-year-old man and a 25-year-old woman have been arrested. The 28-year-old man has been arrested for the murder and abduction of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. Later, on that same day, 13 days after the girls disappeared, some burnt human remains were found over 30 miles from Soham in Suffolk in a ditch. So the next day, the police took to the news to update the public. And the public, you guys, had spent the last two weeks so emotionally invested in this case. Like, doing the volunteering and raising money for the churches and stuff, people were just so emotionally involved that these two young 10-year-old girls had gone missing. So now we'll play a snippet of this report to the public. It is with great sadness that I have to tell you the following news. It may be some days yet before we are able to positively identify the two bodies found at Common Drove. We are certain as we possibly can be tonight, that they are those of Holly and Jessica. So immediately, forensic experts were called in to recover the bodies and to kind of search the area that they were found. There were a few items alongside the bodies that could pretty much on themselves already identify the bodies as Holly and Jessica's before forensic searches even started. So I'll play a snippet of one of the forensic experts explaining what they found at the crime scene in Scuffled. A team of experts, including me, uh, went to the ditch um, and we found that it was the bodies of two little girls. We found part of the pocket of the tracksuit bottoms that one of them was wearing 
part of the little plastic logo off the side of the tracksuit bottoms and also uh, a piece of jewellery uh, which belonged to one of the two girls. So Holly and Jessica's bodies were in such a state when they found them that they weren't gonna really offer up much information or any clues as to how and when Holly and Jessica died. But the place that the bodies were found could have. Professional botanists were called in by police to try and help make sense of this crime scene. So I have a snippet of a botanist that was at the crime scene at the time and uh, we'll explain what she found, and I will play there for you now. Because the, a lot of the nettles had um, gone through corrective growth. They'd been flattened, but they'd grown up um, and, and corrected themselves. And uh, so I said to the police, well, here it is. So police decided to investigate this kind of pathway of nettle plants that the botanists had researched, and they found a strand of Jessica's hair attached to a twig. So now they knew where and how Ian Huntley entered the ditch, and they could start the search for evidence in that area a lot more accurately, easier and quicker. So now police had to somehow proof that it was Ian Huntley that had taken the girls to this ditch. So again, they enlisted the help of botanical experts, and I will play another snippet of what botanical experts found. When I looked at the burnt clothing, it had masses of evidence that matched the vegetation in the ditch. All sorts of things embedded in the clothing um, that were, were from that ditch. And it showed that the girls were clothed when he put them in the ditch. So he must have taken the clothes off while they were in the ditch. So obviously they found vegetation that matched the burning clothes. Everything pins it on Ian Huntley because the girls, their clothes were found 30 miles away at his workplace. Meanwhile, the police also continued to search Ian Huntley's home and they found that recently his house and car had been meticulously cleaned. Officers that had interviewed Ian Huntley on the day that the girls disappeared have reported that they smelled a lemony kind of cleaning product coming from the house. And I will play a snippet explaining this found evidence. Not only did we examine the carpets, upholstery and items within the house, uh, but we were also given uh, the contents of vacuum cleaners that Mr. Huntley had access to. So obviously when you use a vacuum, yes, it sucks everything up, but sometimes little tiny particles can come back out of the vacuum. And so when you're using a vacuum over a big area, it kind of distributes fibers and stuff in the whole area where the vacuum is used. So I'll continue playing the snippet of other evidence found because Ian Huntley hadn't just cleaned his house, he had also meticulously cleaned his car and changed the tires. And so there wasn't just one particular location in which we found uh, the fibers from the girls' clothing. They were found downstairs, upstairs, and in the bathroom as well. What he forgot was that the chassis had picked up soil. The chunks of soil had the same profile as where he put the girls. So in April of 2003, Ian Huntley pled not guilty to his murder charges, which meant that another court date had to be scheduled for November that year to do like a full trial since he wasn't going to admit to it. Ian Huntley was charged with the murders of Jessica Chapman and Holly Wells, and Maxine Carr was charged with perverting the course of justice for her original fake alibi, and also for assisting an offender, because it was believed at this point that Maxine had actually helped Ian with the cleanup efforts, and both of them pled not guilty on all of these charges. So during his trial, Ian Hundley mentioned that he had absolutely nothing to do with these girls' murders or deaths in general. 
and he said that the whole time up until a month before his hearing. He was now admitting that yes, the girls did die in his house that day, but it wasn't murder and that he just kind of panicked and that's why he hit the bodies because he was scared. So in his hearing, he went into further detail about this, saying that the girls were walking back from the shop and that Holly was having a nosebleed. And so he let the girls come into his house. And while they were sorting out Holly's nosebleed, the three of them were in Ian Hundley's bathroom. And then accidentally, Ian Hundley knocked Holly Wells into the bath and she drowned. And then Jessica Chapman, she just witnessed her best friend drown in the bath, she started screaming. And so Ian didn't want Jessica to alert the neighbors about what was going on. So he put his hand over her mouth, trying to calm her down, but subsequently suffocated her by accident. It came out in the trial that just before the girls' murders, Ian Huntley had actually had an argument on the phone with his girlfriend Maxine Carr because he believed that she was cheating on him. And it's theorized that after this phone call, Ian put the phone down, that he was very angry, and then he saw these two 10-year-old girls walking home from the shop, so he lured them into his house took out his anger on the girls, killing them. Although all of this is a theory and still until this day, no one truly knows how or why um, Holly and Jessica had to die. And Ian is still sticking to this accident narrative until this day. So in December of 2003, Maxine Carr admitted in court to lying in her original questioning with the police, saying that she was at home with Ian that day when she was in fact 110 miles away in Grimsby. Even if these murders were an accident, which is what Ian says, but yeah, people don't believe that. Like the majority of people that hear about this case do not believe it was an accident. But even if they were an accident, it's easy to prove that Ian knew that what he was doing was wrong and he tried to cover it up. He tried to dump the bodies, he burned the bodies, why did he do that? If this was really an accident, why did you take your name off of everything that you did? Why did you not admit to it? Call the police. Say that these two girls have just accidentally died in your house. So now we'll play a snippet of the hard evidence that was found on Ian Hundley. We had a large number of transfers of fibers. We had fibers transferred from Mr. Huntley's clothing and his home to the tracksuit bottoms. We had hairs from Mr. Huntley transferred to the items of clothing of, of the girls. And in total, we had 154 transfers. Finally, on the 17th of December in 2003, the court found Ian Huntley guilty on both counts of murder, and he was given two life sentences. His minimum was set to 40 years in prison, although people believe that Ian Huntley is never going to get out of prison. It was revealed after Ian's sentencing that during the trial, he actually faked a mental illness, you guys. He was trying to hopefully get a lower sentence, I guess. He would dribble out of his mouth when he was talking. He would answer questions weirdly, just talk kind of in a weird sense in the hopes that people might think he was actually mentally ill. And he was actually sectioned under the Mental Health Act. While he was sectioned, he was obviously tested for all of these mental illnesses and the hospital found absolutely no evidence that Ian Huntley was mentally ill at all. The police actually got in touch with one of his ex-girlfriends who confirmed that he had actually done this before when he was accused of the sexual assault allegations all those years ago. He again tried to fake having a mental illness, which is why he supposedly did it. And both times police just didn't believe any of it.
So Ian Huntley's girlfriend, Maxine Carr, was found guilty of perverting the course of justice, but she was not found guilty on assisting an offender. The jury believed that she was not aware of the murders that her boyfriend committed. She didn't know anything about Ian committing these murders. They thought that Maxine just lied to protect him because police were obviously very interested in him during the case and she believed that he was innocent so she gave him a fake alibi just to get the police off his back. Um, I actually believe Maxine is a victim in this as well because if she would have said anything to the police Ian would have probably killed her and that's why I think she kept it quiet because she was scared for her own life. Maxine was sentenced to three and a half years in jail, but she was released after a year and nine months, and she was also given a brand new identity. They really felt that Maxine Carr's safety was at risk, so that's why the court decided to give her a brand new identity. Even though Maxine Carr was only in prison for perverting the course of justice, um, the court really felt that her safety was going to be at risk because everybody, the whole public, you guys, hated Ian Huntley for killing these girls. You can't blame them, but Maxine Carr didn't do anything. But they still gave her a brand new identity, and I just thought that that was kind of interesting because giving someone a brand new identity rarely happens. On the 3rd of April in 2004, the house where the girls were killed in, so Ian Huntley's house, was completely demolished and all of the materials were, that were found were disposed in secret locations. So after everything had happened, a lot of investigation was done into the police work surrounding Ian Huntley. So like, for example, how he had over five different sexual assault allegations, some of which he admitted to, but he was never charged for them. How could that happen? He was only charged for that one with the 18-year-old, but what is going on with the other allegations? What is the police doing? They also looked into how it took police two whole weeks after the disappearance of two 10-year-old girls, Holly and Jessica, to find out that a man with these allegations was living so close to them. When young children go missing, they always check if sex offenders live in the nearby area because those are immediate kind of suspects. And so for one man to have so many sexual assault allegations and living so close to two missing 10-year-old girls, like, that needed a lot of investigation because that is really bad police work. Also, another investigation was done into how a man with so many allegations could work in a school setting with a lot of children. And yes, like I understand that allegations are just allegations, and obviously he had only been charged with one. Although he had admitted to a second one with that 11-year-old girl, hello. And for that, many different women have allegations against one man in particular from all over the country as well in all these different places, there's got to be some level of truth to these allegations. So, like I said, Maxine Carr served just over a year and a half of her three-and-a-half-year sentence, and when she was released, she had a brand-new identity for the rest of her life, which cost between £1 million and £50 million. Since... Maxi's release, at least a dozen women have reported getting attacked by people, just like strangers believing that they are Maxine Carr. Maxine Carr now has a husband who has no idea who she is, and they also had a child together in 2011. There are strong opinions about this, and I think it's weird too, because how was Maxine allowed to marry someone and have a child with them without them truly knowing who she is without them knowing her true identity and her past for all we know he could know now because she might have told him in confidence and he might know and have not told anyone but the fact that he has a child with someone like i just can't imagine having a child with someone in that way Imagine going on to get married to someone and having a child with them and then finding out that they are a murderer and they've killed a child. I know it's not the same with Maxine because she didn't kill anyone, she didn't do anything, but I just don't like the idea of not knowing who the person is that you're married to 
and you have a child with. Like, that's so weird to me. Anyway, moving on, Ian Huntley remains in prison to this day, and his life in prison is eventful, to say the least. In September of 2005, a fellow inmate called Mac Hobson, who was serving time for a quadruple murder, he threw boiling water over Ian Huntley, scalding him, because he believed that Ian Huntley's crimes were disgusting. And that says a lot for a quadruple murder, because him thinking that Ian's crimes are Disgusting proofs child murderers and child molesters are always right at the bottom of the kind of pyramid in prison. And for a quadruple murderer to want to hurt you because of your crimes, that shows how hated Ian Huntley was in prison. Ian Huntley was actually awarded £2,500 as compensation for this incident because it was found that it could have actually been prevented by prison guards. In September of 2006, Ian Huntley was found unconscious in his cell after taking his second reported overdose. And he was taken to hospital for a few days to recover. He was fine and everything. But while he was there, the police kind of searched his cell to find out how he got that medication. And what they found in there was a chip with a recording on it. So on this chip, there was a Queen song at the beginning and a meatloaf song at the end. And in the middle, in between those songs, there was kind of a confession as to what he did to Holly and Jessica and how he did it. So in this confession, he sticks to his original claim that a lot of people don't believe, that Holly had a nosebleed, she fell in the bath and drowned, and that Jessica screamed seeing this so that he put his hand over her mouth and suffocated her subsequently. I will link the full article in the description of this podcast episode uh, because this article has a lot of snippets from the transcript that was on the chip. And um, it is a very long transcript confession. So nowhere has like the full transcript of what Ian said, but I'll link down below this article that has a few different quotes of what Ian Huntley taped on the chip. And I will just read out a few for you guys. So these are some quotes that Ian Huntley said on this chip. It was believed that I disposed of Holly and Jessica on Sunday evening, the night that they died, but that wasn't the case. It was actually Monday morning, about 8.30 in the morning, that I took them to Lake and Heath. They spent the night in the booth of my car. Holly fell into the bath. That was when Jessica started to cause a bit of commotion. She tried to, and this is where it arrives for my testimony in court, she tried to use her mobile phone. I grabbed it from her and turned it off as she was constantly saying I pushed Holly. So now I want to paraphrase because this bit is quite long, but like I said, I will link the article in the description of the podcast episode if you want to read further into everything that he said on this confession. Ian claims um, on this confession that he took Jessica downstairs and he tries to explain her that he didn't push Holly, that Holly just kind of fell in the bed, drowned, but she didn't believe him. And anyway, he turned around during this kind of conversation they were having. And when he turned around, Jessica tried to get up and head towards the door to leave. So that was when he grabbed her so she couldn't leave out of the house. She again started screaming because a man had just grabbed her, won't let her leave the house. And that was when he covered her mouth and suffocated her. Meanwhile, Holly was still upstairs in the bath. And at this point, she wasn't actually dead. She was just in the bath from when she had fallen. And by the time he had managed to get back up there, by time, Ian had finished suffocating Jessica. And he had gone back up to Holly. But it was too late to save Holly as well. And both of the girls were dead. Ian Huntley also claims in this confession on this tape that there was absolutely no sexual aspect to this crime, which was highly speculated at the time. And although you can't believe anything that Ian Huntley says, really, because, yeah, he's got a past of lying, sexual assault allegations with this 11-year-old girl that he admitted to, um, he is convicted for sexual assault of an 18-year-old girl, so I don't really know how much you can believe that. 
In 2010, Ian got into an altercation with another inmate who actually slashed Ian's throat, but he was taken straight to hospital and his injuries were not life-threatening. They weren't that bad. The inmate that did this to Ian Huntley was identified as an armed robber named Damien Fox, who actually went on to kill another convicted child killer after his attempt at Ian Huntley. So, if you can still remember, I told you that when Ian Huntley was in his 20s, he had a relationship with a 15-year-old girl called Katie. And when Katie was 16 years old, she actually fell pregnant by the older Ian Huntley. And she actually had a girl, meaning that a double murderer, Ian Huntley, has a daughter. So, I will play a snippet of an interview with Katie for you now. His behaviour started changing fairly quickly, didn't it, towards you? You, you? you suffered terribly at the hands of Ian Huntley. What did he do to you? Um, he beat me, um, physically and emotionally, and sexually abused me. So, as you just heard in that snippet, even during Katie's pregnancy, Ian Huntley was abusive to her. He would try to push her down the stairs, he would punch her in the stomach, just really awful behavior. Katie's daughter is now in her 20s. I believe she's actually 22 years old now, and she's called Sammy. And she didn't actually know who her real dad was until she was 11 years old. Sammy actually found out that Ian Huntley was her father by accident and by herself while she was at school. So I will play a snippet of the interview with his daughter, Sammy, explaining this. Um, it wasn't the actual story that I was researching. It was the crime rates in my area. And when I put that into Google, the first thing that came up was the story. So I went on to that, no idea who he was or anything. And the first thing that came up was um, a picture of my mum and me. So all of her life, Katie had told her daughter Sammy that her real dad was a bad man who did some awful things and that that's the reason why they don't talk to him anymore. And Sammy just kind of accepted that. But when she saw this that day at school, everything just kind of fell in place in her head. And that was when she realized who her dad really was. So that completes this case, guys. I don't know about you, but this case was just crazy to me when I was looking into this, reading about this. Like, in my opinion, Ian's motive was cruel. And I think it must have been revenge or anger and that he acted out of rage against these two innocent, beautiful 10-year-old girls, Holly and Jessica. Like, I would not even be surprised if he sexually assaulted them because of his previous conviction, his allegations and admittings to everything. His obsession with younger girls and abusive behavior also make this case even more disturbing. And I cannot imagine what the parents of Holly and Jessica must have gone through. This case is just so awful, but I'm relieved that these girls got the justice that they deserved. The court has handled the case well, in my opinion. Thank you so, so, so much for listening to another episode of Murder Cafe. I hope you have managed to educate or entertain yourself again. Let me know what you think about this case by maybe leaving a voice message because I would love to hear your thoughts on this case. Also, let me know if you have some recommendations for me for the next case. I will obviously leave some interesting links on this case below, so feel free to check those out. And again, thank you so much for looking into another fascinating case with me, and I hope to discuss another case with you again next time.